I'd like to give a special welcome to the parents who are in town this weekend uh, visiting their kids at Northwestern. I'm, I'm sure that's a pretty cool time for you. I have yet to have any of my kids in college yet. I'm about four years off. Um, my oldest is a freshman in high school, and we get to have all types of fun as well. Um, this uh, Recently, he was had the opportunity to interview me uh, to ask me questions for a uh, his school assignment on who is your hero or who is your role model. So he's asking me these questions for his public school class on who my role model or my hero is. So we had a lot of fun, and so I'm going to share with you some of those questions and answers, and you'll see why they were so much fun. Here we go. Question number one, who is your role model? He knew who I would pick. Come on, who would you pick? Jesus. All right, Jesus is my role model, all right? Next question. What characteristics does this person display? Hmm. Well, he's the great God-man who lived perfect in all of his ways. Question three. Why do you look up to this person? He loved me so much to die for my sins on the cross and raised so I can live forever. Number four. What is your favorite quote of this person? John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Question five. What significant things has this person done in the world? Well, let's see. Uh, he created the world. Uh, he defeated death. He crushed Satan. He rose from the dead, never to die again, so that those who put their faith in him can live forever. There's a few things. Number six. What kind of gift do you feel that this person gives to people? Uh, eternal life. Number seven. Now, this is a tee-up question. Is this person self-sacrificing in any way? <laughs> I mean, they're just asking for that question. Well, yeah, he took the sin, you know, of you and me and died on the cross bearing the wrath of God. And then number eight, <laughs> has this person ever made any mistakes in the past? <laughs> no. <laughs> he lived a sinless life. I mean, it, you, you, this is not fair, right? It's not fair that you get to pick Jesus for your role model. They, say, they should say, pick anybody but Jesus, all right? And, and you get my son. It's not even fair for him to go first. He should definitely go last because he's going to make all the other role models look really inferior. I mean, totally. And he trumps all heroes. He trumps all role models. And, and those of us in here who believe have this deep conviction that, yes, Jesus really is that much greater. There was another man during Bible times of the Bible who had the same conviction that Jesus really is that much greater. His name was the Apostle Paul, and he was known to have said really boldly, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He strongly had this conviction that was very God-ordained, God-centered, that only through Jesus Christ can men and women be saved and live forever. And it was this God-produced and God-centered conviction that lived in him that lives in many of you as well. And it's, it's this deep conviction that we're going to look at today as we once again continue to go through the book of Romans. So if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, we're back in it again today. Now over the last two weeks, for those of you who've been not here, maybe it's your first time here, we've been rooting ourselves deep in the gospel of God. And this gospel has taken root in the community of Rome as they have been called to God through Christ. 
and God has centered them in a community in Rome. In addition, God had called the Apostle Paul to salvation. He also called the Apostle Paul to a special ministry to the Gentiles. And here he is exercising his ministry, to ministering predominantly to the, the Gentile church in Rome. And he was so eager to visit them because he's never visited them before and he wants to preach the gospel to them and others at Rome. And so what we have here is a, basically a 17-verse introduction that is one of rapport building before he launches into his full-blown gospel explanation through the rest of the book of Romans. Now, as we approach our third week in Romans, we're only going to look today at two verses. Two verses that pretty much summarize what Romans is about in the gospel of God. Some have called these two verses the most important verses in the entire Bible. They are for sure the theme and the thesis of Romans. And the specifics of the gospel are starting to be laid out here in verses 16 and 17 before Paul spends the rest of the book explaining. Now, last year we went through the book of Proverbs, and as we said before, Proverbs is just Romans tweeted. Now we're in Romans. This means we need to do some serious work. This is not something you just kick back and relax. You've got to put some effort into this to understand Romans. Some of the stuff we're going to look at today is not normal categories and way you think of things. It's kind of going to stretch your understanding and push some of theological understanding so we can dive deep in the Word. So I'm asking you to put some effort in it. And like I've said before, this is part one of the sermon. You want part two? You go to our ethos communities. We talk about it again. More integration into our lives. So let's go ahead and start with Paul's gospel conviction. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Look at it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Stop. Now, the, the Apostle Paul is writing to a tiny group of believers in the elite capital of the vast, unbelieving empire of Rome. And perhaps this small band of believers in this new faith are a little, a little timid and perhaps maybe a little ashamed of this gospel they believed in a culture where they are not just considered underdogs, but probably considered the scum of the earth. Because the word on the street about this Jesus character among the Romans is that he was some carpenter that grew up in the armpit of the empire in Judea, somehow got arrested and was killed as a common criminal. That's the word on the street among the Romans. Now, of course, the Christians push back and say, yes, that carpenter who was born in the armpit of the empire, that carpenter is the son of God who lived the sinless life, crucified for our sins, buried, rose again. We now submit to them, him as the reigning Lord, and we call everyone to submit to him as well and the, their neighbors in Rome are thinking you know what that is absolutely absurd I mean c come on guys think about it that is a crazy fanciful story just making stuff up what is that and so these Christians were, were mocked in a variety of ways because of this absurd story and there was even some ancient graffiti let me show you some ancient graffiti I'll put it up for you a little picture here Here's an ancient graffiti of a, uh, of a man worshiping. If you can tell, that's supposed to be Jesus on the cross, but instead they put a donkey on the cross uh, to mock this gospel message. And this gospel was not only mocked and made fun of back then, but many today consider this gospel to be absurd. 
you and I both know people in our lives who think that uh, this gospel that we believe is absurd. They don't cherish it the way that you do. And I would say, let's, let's not get dramatic here, but most of the people that are in your life who do not believe the gospel probably don't make fun of you. They don't put donkeys on the cross. They love you. They're your friends. They're your family members. They're not here to dog you. But they do wonder, how can someone as smart as you actually believe this stuff? I mean, come on. You're smart people. You're in a smart school. You live in a smart area. How can you believe something so absurd? I mean, sure, go ahead. Go to church for the golden rule. Great. Go to church for the great example Jesus is. Go to church to make yourself feel better. But all this talk of miracles and death and rising for sin, the need to repent and believe, that is so far-fetched. Why do you believe that? And and you hear these things ringing in your head as you live in this culture, and you're kind of wondering, wow, what's going on? And you start feeling a little bit how the early Christians felt. and, And you say, you know what? You kind of feel internally that the gospel is not stacking up to the elite and the powerful vibe of the day, and you're not seeing the gospel gaining any traction in our culture, and maybe you're pulling back and you're getting a little timid and ashamed of the gospel. But we're looking at this Paul guy, and this Paul guy, he's not ashamed. In fact, he's being persecuted. He is being beaten, arrested, threats of death. He steps up and he says, you know what? I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And so the question we have to ask is, why? Why are you not ashamed of this gospel? And what he would say is, the gospel has power. Look what he says. Look at this gospel power. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. He's not ashamed because he says it. You see the word it there? It is referring back to the gospel. It, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. That he is saying that in the essence of the heart of the gospel is power of God for salvation. Now let's pause for a moment. Pop up that definition of the gospel we've been looking at each week. Here's the definition of the gospel. Flesh it out more throughout the book. But the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to rescue lost humanity from their sins and adopt them as children of God. That's the gospel message kind of contained in a a sentence. Now, it is this gospel message, as it is reclaimed in the reality of its content and what happened in history, it is this gospel that Paul says has power, has the omnipotence of God as it is preached and proclaimed, and it is this gospel that saves men and women. If you tell people you're saved, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're saved? Well, the Bible talks about being saved from your sin. Yes, that's what we're talking about. We're also talking about being saved from the wrath of God through Jesus' death. We're talking about being saved from our futile way of life. We're talking about being saved from eternal separation from God. And we're also talking about being saved from death. We're going to not die. We're going to be with the Lord forever. So, yes, we are saved through this power in the gospel. And so others may say, it is outlandish, it is absurd, it is crazy talk, it is a psycho story, and we're saying, along with Paul, no, no, power to save. If you had the cure for AIDS, let's say you had it, you figured it out, and you 
you gave it to people who had AIDS and you saw them healed. And you were for sure you had that cure to see them healed. And others doubted you. Said, you're crazy. There's no cure out there. You can't fix that. But you know, you found it. And so you just want to get that medicine to as many sick people as you know. That is to be the heart of our conviction in the gospel. Others may say, it is absurd. Quit talking about it. You're being a fool. But you know what you know what you know. Then the gospel is the power, the power of God to save people. And so you have the Apostle Paul. He has these deep-rooted conviction. Where does that come from? It comes from this gospel power. As it is preached, as proclaimed, it sees people get saved and changed and transformed. But the question you've got to ask next is, well, how does that work? Right? You've got this conviction and you've got the power, but what makes it Bam! What's, what makes that power work? Like, explain that to me. And this brings us to the third part of the gospel righteousness. Look at the gospel righteousness in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The reason the gospel has power to save is because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Another way to say it is that the gospel pulls off salvation because in it is revealed the righteousness of God. Now, like I said, you cannot just check out when you study the book of Romans. You cannot get lazy. This is one of the parts I'm calling to your full attention to not be lazy. You miss the understanding of righteousness of God, you're going to miss the whole point of Romans. I know we want feely, touchy sermons, so we don't have to think much, but you've got to think. What's going on here? What does it mean when Paul says righteousness of God? Get it early because he's going to say it a lot in the book of Romans. And depending on the context in Romans, the righteousness of God can mean a variety of things. But what I'm asking right now is what does righteousness of God mean in verse 17? What does he mean when he's given his thesis and his theme of the book? What do you mean, Paul, by righteousness of God? Well, I think the answer is is that there's a couple things that he has in mind on this first thesis at the beginning of the book. I think a dual understanding of righteousness of God is happening. I'm going to show it up for you. These two things. Number one, it's God's saving activity. Number two, God's gift of right standing. I think those are the two things that are going on here as he is introducing righteousness of God. And these are the two we're going to look at briefly. Number one, when Paul says righteousness of God, he's referring to God's saving activity. It's his saving activity to rescue sinners. In this sense, get this, the righteousness of God is equivalent with the saving activity of God. And this, this understanding is thoroughly rooted in the Old Testament. So if an Old Testament believer had heard about the righteousness of God from the Old Testament, their mind would think at different contexts. They would think, oh, the righteousness of God, you're talking about the saving activity of God. It means the same thing. Let me show you some verses from the Old Testament. Psalm 98.2. Psalm 98.2 says, The Lord has made known his salvation. 
He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So see how they're equivalent there? See how they're parallel ideas, salvation and righteousness? Let me show you another one in Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Once again, righteousness and salvation are synonymous. They're the same thing. You're talking about God's righteousness, you're talking about his saving activity. And let's just see one more in Isaiah 51, 5 and 8. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. So as we can see in these different Old Testament contexts, I know this is some extra work, these Old Testament contexts, the righteousness of God is equivalent with the saving activity and power of God. And the reason why we think that Paul is saying that idea here in 16 and 17 is because he gives us those equivalent ideas in these two verses. Look at our own context. Verse 16, once again, he's talking about this gospel. It's the power of God. Now check it out. For salvation to everyone who believes. So we have the idea of the salvation. And then in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So even in our own context, we have the equivalent synonymous ideas that as this gospel is going out, it's the salvation. Why? Because the saving activity of God is revealed. I hope that's not too complicated for you. But the reason why this gospel has power that we preach is because in this gospel is the saving activity of God, the saving power of God. So when we have righteousness of God revealed, it's talking about as it is preached, it has saving power to actually save people because it's God's activity. Now the second dual understanding, the second part of the understanding of the righteousness of God has to do with God's gift of right standing. Now if you have grown up maybe in more Reformed churches uh, or Covenant churches, uh, maybe you, you get this idea more. And for those of you who don't understand this idea, it is, it is so key. And it's the idea of that the gospel reveals a righteousness from God that is given to believers as a gift of right standing. This aspect of righteousness of God has to do with the way that God views believers in his sight. And it's, it's more of a legal idea, a forensic idea. That, uh, but let's imagine a courtroom and a judge would have someone come before him and he would declare that person innocent and not guilty. And the idea is that through the gospel, as it is declared and one believes, in God's sight, God views them as innocent and not guilty guilty through their faith in Christ. Now, I want to clarify here. I want to make sure we're teaching right doctrine. It's, it, I want you to get this. Having your sins forgiven is not enough to get into heaven. That, I know that's so controversial. <laughs> Having your sins forgiven is not enough to get into heaven. God is not going to accept you just because your, your sins are forgiven. The only way he's going to accept you is if your sins are forgiven and you, in his sight, are perfectly righteous. That's the idea here, is that in the gospel, it is revealed that we are, have forgiven sins, and in God's sight, we're viewed as perfectly righteous. 
Do you think that Jesus just showed up and he thought, well, the whole point of Jesus is just to die, rise, and move on with it? Well, let me ask you a question. Why did it take 33 years to get there? His life's important as well because he perfectly obeyed the commands of God, fulfilling all righteousness. Perfect, didn't fail. So get this. The one who died is a perfect one. The one who rose is a perfect one. And if you trust him, not only do you have your sins forgiven, but you get his track record of perfect righteousness. Are are you with me? Did you get that? We get to be clothed in his righteousness. And it doesn't mean in the sense that he kind of gives us some righteousness and then we act like good people, then maybe he'll let us into heaven. No, no, no. God views you, a sinner, through faith, as righteous. It's, it's a simultaneous thing where you are at one time a sinner and still a sinner, and yet God views you as righteous. This is key. This is the gospel here. This is what Paul proclaims in a variety of places. For example, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, And be found in him, it's Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's saying, I want a righteousness that comes from God, that's outside of me, that God views me as righteous in Christ. Now, the opposite of this would be trying to create your own righteousness. This is what we see in the book of Romans in chapter 10, where some Jews try to create their own righteousness. Romans 10.3, these are speaking of Jews who try to create their own righteousness through the law. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So a lot of the ideas we'll see in Romans is that the Jews that are trying to obey the commands of God so they can attain a righteousness so they think they can get their way into heaven. Some people can't stand the church because they feel like the church is always telling them what to do. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to be a better person. I don't want to hear that, all that telling me what to do. But you know what makes them even more mad? If you want to make someone really mad, tell them this. There is nothing you can do to make yourself better. There is nothing you can do in your works to get yourself to heaven. Nothing. And that is why our gospel is good news. You want some grace in your face? Here you go. You can't do anything to get into heaven. You cannot do good works to attain righteousness at all. It is yours through faith in Christ alone. In God's eyes, through faith in Christ, he views you as perfectly holding to all the law. And he views you righteous in his sight. That is good news. So let's put it all together here, okay? So we have this gospel conviction is rooted in this gospel power to save. And that is, that is reality through what? Gospel righteousness, the saving activity of God and the declaring of right standing. But the last part is it can only be yours and it can only be experienced by you through faith. This brings up the last point this gospel faith. Let's look at it. At 
the end of 16, it talks about everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the saving activity uh, through faith is available to everyone. But let's just kind of briefly hit this Jew first and Greek thing. Um, The Jews have a special place in God's plan because as we go through Romans, we'll see that God gave them the covenants. uh, God gave them the giving of the law and um, the promises. And hey, the Messiah came from the Jewish people. And so Paul would make it his priority when he would show up to a town to go to the Jewish synagogues first, preach the gospel, and then move on to the Gentiles. And what we'll see as we come to chapters 9 through 11 is God's plan for the Jews and how that relates to the gospel. But you're going to have to wait like eight months, all right? But you can read ahead if you want. But the main aspect here is faith, that the person can only experience a saving activity of God and right standing before God through faith. And if you look at verse 17, this faith is thoroughly steeped, um, what talks about from beginning to end, from, from faith for faith, as it is written, the, gospel, the righteous shall live by faith. It's, a, it's an allusion, Old Testament text here. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, 4. And um, it's just showing that there is faith in the Old Testament. Don't think that the Old Testament is about works. Do your works and go to heaven. Don't, don't, don't think that. Old Testament's about faith as well. And it has a continuity with the faith described as well in the New Testament. In, in the context of Hosea, God's just reminding his people, hey, you're going to experience my salvation and my blessings only through faith. Now, this faith, if, if someone asked you to describe what it means to have faith, what would you say? What does it mean that you have faith? Well, this is what you should mean when you talk about faith. Part of it is mental activity. Yes, yes, I get that. Mental assent to facts that occurred about 2,000 years ago that you believe in in your mind and your heart that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. You, be- you believe that. That's a mental fact. You believe that he was the son of God, sinless, died for your sins, buried for You're mentally believing something. But the Bible also talks about faith as something that's going on inside where you're confessing Jesus as Lord. So faith is believing facts, absolutely. But that faith is kind of taking root in your life where you're submitting to Jesus as Lord. So if you say you have faith, it doesn't mean you just believe some facts about Jesus and so you're going to heaven. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about believing the facts so much so that it impacts your life and you're submitting to Jesus as Lord right now. That is true, genuine, biblical, gospel faith. Believes the facts at the same time submitting to Jesus as Lord. It's a combination packed together. So let's put all the stuff together that we said today. We have this gospel conviction. And it's rooted in the gospel power of God to save And that is a reality because gospel righteousness has shown up on the scene. And that is experienced only through gospel faith. And Paul says at the beginning of his letter, I am not ashamed. I actually believe this stuff and I'm willing to die for it. And if you're a believer here today, I'm just wondering out loud where your gospel conviction's at. I mean, do a little scale on one to ten, one being low, ten being high. Like, where are you at right now? I mean, to put it really crassly, do you, do you really believe this stuff? Is this taking root within you? Like, you're like, yeah, 
this is for real stuff. It sounds absurd to everybody else, but this is real. God really saved me. This is some serious stuff. Where are you at right now? My brothers and sisters, we have experienced some serious power in our lives that has changed us. And we've seen it change others as well. I was telling my six-year-old last night, I said, man, if God did not save me, I'm a bad daddy as it is. I'd be a really bad daddy. I've experienced the changing, saving power of God. And I just want to close here with a, um, a, a story of probably one of the most powerful examples that I've seen of the saving power. And I know just telling the story may not be culturally um, acceptable, but I don't care. Uh, one, my, my friend from my first church, which was my last church, I, I, I'm from Los Angeles. I was pastoring a church in Santa Monica. And a guy named Justin showed up to my church week after week wearing a suit. That's not normal. You don't wear suits to church in Los Angeles. But anyway, he was wearing a suit. And... I have no idea why he came to our church. My last church was like 25 people tops on a good Sunday. And he would show up, sit in the back, wearing a, a suit. He was a young businessman who had started a, a, a successful restaurant, sold that restaurant, cashed in, made a lot of money. And he was currently running an elite real estate agency. That's why he would wear a suit every Sunday, because right after church he would go and sell million-dollar properties. He was living with his uh, male partner who he had a long-standing relationship with and he even owned this business with. And they were living large in this big city who affirmed their gay lifestyle. So after a while, he was sitting in the back like, man, we've got to get together and talk. I've got to figure out who you are and what's going on. And as he told me his story, he told me this. He said, week after week, I'm sitting in my chair in the back and I'm hearing the gospel, and I am so convicted that I don't want to move because if I move, I'm going to fall over. And over time, the gospel took root in his life, and he, and he saw forgiveness in Christ, and he repented and trusted Christ, and his life started to change. He was all in, and he, he broke up uh, with his partner, and he moved out and he started to pursue a life of purity. He hungered for the word and, instead of money. And his, his life was radically altered by the saving power of God. Just crazy. When that happened, uh, his partner rushed into my office. He was so angry at me did not understand this gospel, did not understand what was wrong or what was right, and he was going off on me. And that was the last day I'd ever had seen his partner. So I, I'd left uh, Santa Monica, Los Angeles when the church was done, and I, I came here several years ago. And as I was here a few years, um, I, I heard that my friend Justin, uh, the real estate guy who got saved, at the age of 38, he died just crazy that he would die. He had some heart condition and when he was working out, he just died. It was like shock. Guess who called me? 
His partner called me, his ex-partner. And he, and he called me, he told me, I'm sorry for what I said to you the last time we met, the only time we met. And I just want to tell you that since then, God has saved me. God has saved me. So not only is my friend tragic death with Jesus in heaven, but this guy is following Christ till today. Now, I know in the mind of some of you, you think, well, that's, that's a re- ridiculous story, or you, maybe you might ridicule it. And if I told this story outside of these walls in our culture, they would, they would ridi- really ridicule me. But you know what? I don't care. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I've seen this gospel change people's lives. You have too. It's changed you. I want to be embarrassed or timid and ashamed of this gospel. This is real. May it take root deep in our lives and impact us more so that when we get around people in the culture that we love, that we will open our mouths and share Jesus with them. And who knows? Maybe the power of God will save them as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for saving us through Jesus. Thank you for changing us through Jesus. And thank you that it's all grace. I just ask that you would just forgive us for being timid and ashamed of what you've done. And may we just get to the point where we've seen too much power to be quiet. In Jesus' name. Amen.